You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Domesticated dogs have been our constant companions since antiquity. Before we had the technology to write down our stories, our oral history was populated with a kennel full of hounds, both mundane and monstrous. Think of Odysseus's faithful dog Argos. He's the only one who immediately recognizes the returning warrior after his lengthy absence, but such tales don't always wag in the direction of loyal companionship. There are darker stories out there and monstrous. The spectral hounds that walk the crumbling halls of ancient manors, the braying beasts which beset beleaguered travelers along certain stretches of byway, the vicious canids who guard the gates of the underworld. Sometimes they serve as warnings, sometimes they're just scary stories best told by campfire, and sometimes they're pure myth. But world culture is littered with tales of horrendous hounds. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Karen Stoltzno. And I'm Blake Smith. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters. Today we'll be talking about the folklore of black dogs with the host of the folklore podcast, Mark Norman. For those of you wondering, our next episode should be part two of our look at the infield poltergeist. I wanted to get one more interview for that episode, and I have it now, and I'm working on putting all the pieces together. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I hope you'll enjoy today's interview. This is a crossover podcast, and the audio from this interview is also featured on the Folklore Podcast. Today we'll be discussing not just the legends of black hounds, but also the nature of folklore and folklore studies. I hope you enjoy it, and if you do, let me recommend Mark's show, The Folklore Podcast. He deals with a lot of kinds of lore, which often overlap topics of interest to Monster Talk listeners, and I've heard many unusual stories there which I'd never heard before. A quick reminder... Monster Talk is now supportable on Patreon, but it is your reviews on iTunes which most directly help spread the word about Monster Talk. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment and give us a brief review on iTunes. 
The more fresh, positive reviews we get, the more likely we are to be promoted or featured on Apple's iTunes Store, which is where the majority of our listeners find us. Monster Talk. Mark Norman is a folklore researcher and author who lives on the edge of Dartmoor in Devon in the United Kingdom, hound of the Baskervilles territory. He's a committee member of the Folklore Society and also the creator and the host of the Folklore Podcast, a fine and entertaining podcast. Uh, I like it a lot. I like the intro music and I like the content. Mark is the author of Black Dog Folklore, the only full-length study of the subject by a single author and holds what's thought to be the United Kingdom's largest archive of black dog sightings and eyewitness accounts, which also includes a complete transcript of the archives of folklorist Theo Brown. Welcome to Monster Talk, Mark. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your podcast? Sure. Uh, well, as, as you heard in the bio there, um, I am a folklore researcher and an author um, and the creator of the Folklore Podcast. Um, the Folklore Podcast is... A podcast which in many, many ways, I guess, is very similar to Monster Talk um, in so much as it tries to be uh, a relatively academic, um, but also hopefully interesting. <laughs> so it covers a variety of folklore subjects, uh, but, but in some detail in the same way as uh, you do on your show. Uh, and this came about really because... There appeared to be a niche where this area wasn't really being covered within the podcast circuit, for want of a better term. Um, there's a very, very nice podcast, which everybody will probably be aware of, called Law, which uh, comes out of the US. L-O-R-E, Aaron Mankey's uh, podcast, Law, which is a lovely show and um, hit a real niche itself and, and was very, very popular and still is very popular, but is slightly different. And it's more of a kind of um, campfire storytelling genre uh, rather than academic discussion. So what I try to achieve with mine is more of the analysis that's interesting to both academics and lay people alike, but with access to, like, like yourselves, to some really good guests. Being a member of the Folklore Society, I guess I've got access to some quite um, well-known people within the folklore sphere uh, who seem to be happy to come on and talk. So, so we have a mix of um, guest episodes and ones where I just sort of sit and blather on for half an hour about some piece of folklore. Today we're going to be talking about spectral black dogs through this lens of folklore. And you've written a book, as you mentioned in the introduction, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. In your book, Black Dog Folklore, you've got hundreds of references to these stories. Um, but can you tell us how you, in particular, became familiar with Black Dog lore and how it, what, what sort of precipitated the, the collection of this book material? Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, I kind of came across Black Dog by accident in a lot of ways. Um, in the 1990s, I was looking at the archives of Theo Brown, who was a, a very, very well-known and well-respected folklorist in the UK throughout the kind of 1950s, 60s, 70s. She was a, a past president of the Folklore Society and, and very involved in that way. Uh, she lived in the area that I live in, in Devon, and she collected masses of information on pretty much every aspect of folklore that you could imagine. Um, and she bequeathed all of her uh, literary works and her collections to the University of Exeter, um, uh, where they're housed now in the Special Collections Department. Um, so when she died, 
all, all of that work went there. And in the 1990s, I was accessing those archives just really because I was poking around for anything interesting from my local area, because I'm, I'm very interested in kind of local folklore uh, of the southwest of the UK. And, and that was primarily what I went in for. But then I came across uh, this part of the archive, which was just labelled Black Dogs. Um, and it kind of piqued my interest because there was a lot more of that than there was of anything else. Um, it was stored in the way that traditional folklorists uh, would normally keep materials, uh, which is in any kind of random container that you might come across. Um, you, you can ask my wife to clarify exactly how this works. <laughs> so there was an awful lot of paperwork um, labelled Black Dog, and it was in kind of um, potato crisp packet uh, boxes and um, a big blue metal ammunition tin from the army and all these sorts of things. Uh, and as I went through this, I realized that it was actually a wealth of information that Theo had collected. She was one of three folklorists in the UK who primarily collected black dog stories through the 1930s to the 1970s, I guess. Um, so all of her archive was there. And within that were three draft copies of a manuscript on black dog folklore, which Theo was working on. Um, she had worked on this book for some time. It had never been published, any of this material. Um, she very sadly had a stroke, um, was unable to continue working on it. Um, when she eventually passed away, all of this went to the University of Exeter Collections. Um, so I was speaking with the special collections librarian about it, and we thought, this is really interesting. You know, some, something should be done with this. It's actually quite an important collection uh, and is accessed um, very infrequently, really, these days. So we tracked down Theo's literary executor, who was another very respected folklorist, also now deceased, called Dr. Hilda Ellis Davidson. A number of people probably will know from, she wrote extensively on folklore subjects. And I spoke to Dr. Davidson and we had a conversation about it. And she said, you know, as long as you can retain the academic standing and work in, in the manner that Theo was, this absolutely should be brought to publication in some way. So that was my original goal then, was to work on this archive and bring it to publication. As I did that, I became very, very aware of the fact that it was very much of its time in the style of language and the way that it was written. So actually, the manuscripts that were there needed a very, very serious rewrite. And a lot of other material was then collected as, as we went through um, by myself and by other people, which all got combined. And the upshot a number of years later is my book, which is also partly Theo's book. It's a fantastic book, too. So interesting. Thank you. Yeah, it has an astonishing amount of material in it. it I mean, information-wise, mm -hmm. it, it's a reference uh, that I think if anyone's interested in folklore, or black dogs in particular, they really need to have a copy. Thank you. Yes, there's a, there's a lot that's gone into there, and a, a lot of collecting took place by a number of people, really, to, to form this book, yeah. And, and so you don't need a you know, potato crisp boxes to hold it together like you, <laughs> it's all in a nice <laughs> volume right so <laughs> absolutely i hasten to add that the archives at the university are now stored in correct archive boxes that was just how it was when it originally went in it has been sorted oh, since then it's a nice story <laughs> so 
what are these black dogs then? I know we've talked about spectral black dogs. Are they ghosts? Are they something else? Can they be lots of different things? Well, that's the $64 million question, really, isn't it? Um, <laughs> what are they? They are a number of things. They can be a number of things. But the caveat that I would always put in at this point is that I am a folklore researcher. What I'm not is a paranormal investigator. Uh, and also what I'm not is a scientist. So my standing is not to set out and try to prove or disprove to believers or sceptics what these things are. Are they ghosts? Are they real animals? Are they a bit from column A or a bit from column B? Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm interested in. To me, as a folklorist, it actually doesn't matter what they are. What matters to the folklore side of this sort of um, area of study is why people experience what they report that they do. Um, why are they seeing these images? Why do these images behave in the way that they do? Uh, and what is going on? Now, as a sceptic, either of you two would turn around and say, well, unless we have good scientific evidence to prove that these are apparitions of ghostly black dogs, then they're not that. Fair enough. Um, in the same way as you would say, OK, until I can get past this plaster cast of uh, this large foot and see a 10 foot tall ape like creature lying in front of me, then it is not Bigfoot. Um, but what we're looking at here and what we're interested in here really is why people have these experiences. And what's fascinating about this area is that the experiences go back a long, long way. But many people who have these experiences believe that their experiences are unique. So they often don't report them for a long time. Or when they do report them, they're not aware that anybody else has had something similar. And then when you look at the accounts, and I have hundreds and hundreds of accounts um, in my archive, when you look at the accounts, what you see is actually there are very, very strong similarities between the way that these things are reported uh, by people, you know, three, four, five hundred years ago or three, four, five days ago. There are key recurring phrases. There are key methods of behavior that the animal exhibits. I'll use the animal for want of a better term. Um, and what we're interested, therefore, is why this is happening. Now, folklore is all about symbolism. It's about decoding the motifs and the symbols within these events and looking at them and saying, OK, what does this mean? What does it mean to the person that experiences it? And why do they experience it in the way that they do? So that's what we're interested in. We're not interested in saying this is definitely a ghost. This is definitely a misidentified big cat, which is another theory as to what a lot of these things are. What we're interested in is why this has been said in this way. Yeah, we're definitely interested in those aspects as well. It's a, it's a different, I guess, a, a somewhat different modality. And so the a lot of our work tends to be on evaluating whether things are provable demonstrably so that sort of thing or you know i what we don't want to do is get into the well it was probably this or it was probably that which i, I always hate because um it's so easy to just 
you know, make assumptions, but be dismissive. Yeah, yeah. but I love these legends. I love the stories. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that uh, is important. You know, our our show is not just a debunking show, which is you know, you already know this. I think it's worth mentioning it. This is the key thing as well, isn't it? Because as skeptics, I think you would both probably agree that you have to approach everything that you look at as in an open-minded way. Should be. Yes. Should do. Exactly. We try to. Yeah. And as as a folk as a folklorist, I do exactly the same thing. So if somebody it relates an experience to me, I will be completely impartial, open-minded about it, and say, okay, that's what you experience, and then compare it to the record. Has anybody else experienced this? What could be going on here? So how does that work from a methodological perspective? The it, it seems like part of what a folklorist does is collect stories, but stories can be created far more quickly and in much greater volume than an academic could collect them. So how does one determine what is worth saving and what's not? What's sort of the criteria for inclusion, if you will? Well, this is part of the reason why folklore collection, I think, has quite a bad rep with a number of other academic disciplines because most of it, if not all of it, if you like, is important to collect because we're interested in how things change and develop over time. Mm-hmm. So why do people experience things now um, in a different way to how they experienced them before or in the same way? So what we're looking at is the way that this symbolism or, or the interpretation of this symbolism changes over time so really we need to be collecting all sorts of examples um so the the methodology really is is if somebody has an experience that fits into the um particular motif that the folklorist is interested in then it's worth collecting that because experiences over time are very similar but but how people relate them you've covered this before i think in in the show how people relate them is different think about fairies for example so in Victorian times, earlier than that, people talk about being pixie-led or being away with the fairies. You know, they report absences for long periods of time. Fairies take human babies away and they um, re- replace them with changelings. So you get a sickly fairy baby in return. Um, there is kind of interbreeding folklore between humans and fairies. Compare all of that with a number of the UFO abduction stories that that you get in the UFO press, the symbols are really, really similar, Um, even down so far as um, people who report being pixie-led and who who report being taken to the fairy realm often report particular smells, earthy smells. Some UFO abduction cases, people report smells like cinnamon, which is a very earthy smell. So even down to that level, you're finding very, very strong ties between the stories that are being told. But the way they're being decoded and understood by the people who experience them changes based on the cultural patterns of the time. So in the Victorian times, fairies made sense. In the 20th century, UFOs make sense. It's a kind of modern adaptation. Yes, exactly. And that's exactly what happens within folklore stories and and the way that that these experiences are related by people that they change over time. Ben Rad looked at a very similar thing in in his work on the Chupacabra and how stories change and develop based on, uh, in more modern times, the proliferation of horror stories within the media and the way that horror films are dealt with. 
being much more intense than in previous times. Um, and therefore, the experiences that people have draw on that culture. Um, we, and you find it in black dog symbolism, too. People in modern times are reporting much more demonic aspects based on the kind of lycanthropy and werewolf tropes that you get in in films and, and stories these days. In the older accounts, they're a lot more gentle in many ways because they're based on the kind of penny dreadful style literature. It's how you draw on the culture that's around you to interpret your experience. I find it interesting that you uh, are talking about how these stories change over time, yet at the same time, um, you're also saying that there are a lot of similarities over time yeah. uh, in the, the terminology that's used when people describe their accounts of what occurred. And I know that you've collected hundreds of accounts and these seem to be UK specific. Have you looked at stories in other countries? Are there similarities with these stories across uh, culture and time? Uh, yes, there are in both cross culture and Across time, you, you find them in both ways. So across time, for example, we go back to the earliest account that I know of, um, which I have in my archive, which comes from 1127. Wow. So we're, we're talking like nearly a thousand years ago. So the earliest example is in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is a, a kind of history of England that was written for King Alfred. It was sent out to monasteries around the 890 AD time, and it was copied by the monks in the way that um, the documents were in that time. And these different monasteries held their own copies of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but then they started to add their own history, more local history to them later on. And the, the longest running of these chronicles ran until 1154, which was in Peterborough. And in that version, we find this account in 1127. And the account in that document says, and this relates kind of to the wild hunt aspect of, of the folklore. The, the account says, many men both saw and heard a great number of huntsmen hunting. The huntsmen were black, huge and hideous and rode on black horses and on black he goats. And their hounds were jet black with eyes like saucers and horrible. Now, what's important in that account is this phrase, eyes like saucers. And I'll tell you why, because that phrase occurs from that point throughout time, right up to modern accounts. Uh, and it occurs time and time again. Uh, by people who have no knowledge particularly of this subject. So they're not consciously drawing on this particular phrase. Now, there is a problem, um, which some people might have picked up on with this, and that's that this word sources doesn't actually enter into the English language until the 14th century. So that translation is not actually strictly accurate. It's the translation that most modern documents who, that refer to this will quote. But it's not strictly accurate. And, and the, the point that I make in my book is that actually the, the correct translation of that phrase is that the hounds were black and big eyed and loathsome. So the meaning is the same. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. what's happened is this phrase, eyes like saucers, has been juxtaposed. It's been mapped backwards onto this original phrase, um, which, again, highlights its significance. And you find it in Hans Christian Andersen's The Magic Tinderbox, um, which features... Uh, a, a black dog as a guardian of treasure, which has these massive eyes. Um, and you find it in accounts right through to the 
to the modern day. So there are these key things that that kind of travel through time. And again and again, they will crop up. So the question that we have to ask is what's going on here? Why does this happen? The the um, hypothesis that's put forward by um, Carl Jung in Jungian psychology is that we're drawing on some kind of folk memory, a collective memory. Um, and, and that is part of this cultural decoding of the symbolism that we take part in. So, yes, across time, we find these things. But yes, also, we find them across um, different cultures internationally as well. So, for example, uh, the the Latin American version of the black dog um, is called the Cadejo. And I'm sure it's not pronounced like that, but that's how I'm going to pronounce <laughs> it, because that's my best stab at it. So, uh, in in the Latin American folklore, we find um, this particular version which comes in two colours, actually. There's a black version and a white version. The black version, as you would expect, is more evil and it's more dangerous. Uh, the white version uh, is more protective, and those are both aspects of black dog folklore that we find in the UK. What's interesting about that version in Latin America is that we find etymology that's very similar to um, versions in the UK. So in the UK... Um, and I think you've had David Waldron on as a guest in the past who's talked about um, his particular studies of on a more local level of black dog folklore. And he looked at the shook and the shook is is one of the two types of uh, black dog law that we find, particularly in the UK. It's found in the northern part of the UK predominantly. And it's the more demonic and portentous aspect of the black dog. Uh, now, the name shook probably derives from the anglo-saxon and it probably comes from shocker which means devil which is why you get this kind of demonic aspect but there are other possibilities um jennifer westwood who's quite a well-known folklore researcher suggested that shook and there are other versions of the name shock is one um comes from a description of the shaggy hair that this particular type of dog was said to have. What it's, it's less likely that that's the case, but it is possible. But what's interesting is if you go back then to the Latin American version of the black dog, it also has shaggy hair. Uh, it also has fiery eyes, which again is very similar to the kind of tropes that you get here. But in a lot of modern Spanish dictionaries, the Cadejo as a, as a black dog is given a secondary meaning. And the secondary meaning is a tangled knot of hair. And that kind of ties in with this idea of shock um, being, which is um, a, a term for a, a tangled knot of hair anyway, a shock of hair in, in some respects, but also this kind of shaggy coated dog that's often put forward as a, a, a derivation of the word shuck ties in very nicely. And also, interestingly, a lot of accounts in Latin America and they're drawing on their own culture here, say that the eyes of the dog are very large. And in this case, they say that the dog has eyes like tortillas. So this is very similar, very similar to the eyes like saucers aspect that we find in in UK accounts. But it's drawing on the own culture to, to make the um, description relevant. I do find it interesting the uh, that the saucer reference um, is is 
I guess, incorrect, or at least it's anachronistic, because it reminds me of in Flying Saucers. The whole idea of Flying Saucers is tied to a mistake in that Kenneth Arnold said that his original sighting were things that skipped like saucers are going across a pond. Now, why you would have saucers and tossing them onto a pond, I don't know. But that he didn't <laughs> say that they were... They were not saucer shaped. They flew like saucers yeah. skipping across a pond, but that got that got misconstrued in the in the media and it, the media. And people yeah. started reporting seeing flying saucers. But I, I'm mm-hmm. thinking about all these saucers, you know, eyes as big as saucers, but then they're not. They're they're predating the uh, the use of the saucers. I guess what this all leads to is I'm wondering: is it possible they weren't dogs at all? That they were table werewolves. <laughs> There. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me throw let me throw this back at you. Um, from from your side, um, as uh, somebody who wants to analyze this kind of sc- stuff on a skeptical level, um, we're not looking here at a cryptozoological creature. So the majority of these accounts are not claiming that this is a physical creature. So how do you interpret these experiences? How would you look at what these people are experiencing? It's really difficult. I think uh, as skeptics, we normally look at these stories as a just case by case. Um, so to to look at them all at the same time, it's it's just very easy to be dismissive or to, to try and come up with a couple of explanations, uh, and, then, and that would be unfair. Um, so really the, the best thing to do is to look at a particular example. Um it's really hard to say what these could be. Um, you know, but I, I'm just with the aspect of you talking about the um, similarities from an etymological standpoint, it seems to me like there's some kind of diffusion that's taking place in retelling these stories anyway, just an oral diffusion of it it's spreading over time. And that that's why there would be similarities across time. Um, so I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's that's quite valid. Where that becomes more interesting, by extension, then is is where people are using these same linguistic phrases or these same descriptions, physical descriptions or descriptions of behaviour, where they have no particular knowledge of the subject, so they don't have this background to draw on. So. What we have to ask ourselves there when it becomes interesting is, are they drawing on a subconscious cultural level on something? Because at the end of the day, there's a large amount of uh, function of the brain that we still don't understand. So is that something that's possible? Maybe it is. Uh, Or is something else going on? Is it, and, is it possible that the, the stories themselves, uh, that there's an oral tradition that's not being captured um, because it's you know it's it's ephemeral the, the the oral traditions and and the people who tell the stories may not be the people who are writing them and the people who are writing them may actually have more familiarity with that other ex- extant lore from the time so the I guess there's so much that's of interest to me that falls outside of you know directly with skepticism but the 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 sort of uh, the ideas of um, viral transmission of data that that idea of things going viral i think it predates the internet even though um, i think so too that you know yeah. people think of it yeah right i mean we have you know folklore those stories spread and i i don't know how much of folklore deals with the sort of the patterns of transmission but 
it, it's obvious that you hear, uh, I'll give you an example, um, people who have hydrocephaly. There's a lot of stories, it's not a very nice set of stories because that's a really serious medical condition, but there's lots of stories in urban legend lore about the collection of people with that. They call them waterheads or melon heads and, and uh, they... They treat them like monsters, that there's these places where those people live and they'll attack you or whatever. It's a strange Mm. legend. I don't know why it exists, but it exists and it's repeated in multiple locations because I've run into people and I've read uh, where people say, oh, well, that's near my house or, you know, which is a classic urban legend thing where it didn't happen to me, but a friend of a friend, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Folklore is is very well known. (laughs) Right. So those stories... (laughs) also predate the internet and those stories are all over the united states i I know of at least three places but i'm sure they're more widely spread than that yeah doesn't it tie in with roswell in some versions as well the the roswell it's entirely possible that have you not i've i've heard that version that the uh the roswell alien autopsy footage were although not necessarily being said that 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 is um somebody who was suffering from that particular condition but that kind of image is drawn from this idea that um actually there was some kind of experimentation going on involving people who suffered from that condition and that's how it got misrepresented as, as being an alien Right, so two uh, variations of that. I don't know if it's a story collection time, but there, there is the star child um, skull, which uh, was most likely a child that was suffering from that condition, um, and mm-hmm. that's been uh, tossed around as being an alien hybrid. And then there was um, some government research talking about a, a high altitude uh, uh, deformation, temporary deformation, the swelling of the head of, of uh, people who had, uh, or animals uh, that had been tested from parachutes, that sort of thing. But yeah. that's, it's the same idea. These, these, uh, these elements, uh, and I, I want to say the word motif, but I don't know if that's the right word here. The, uh, I think that has a specific meaning of folklore. Maybe we can talk about that, but um, these, yeah, these, sure. these story elements, um, they get repeated again and again across multiple stories. And, um, that is something that's, you know, from a skeptic's perspective, there's this whole thing about doing scientific skeptical analysis of claims, right? And then, you know, one of those we start with, did the thing ever happen in the first place? We take the null hypothesis and take a look at that. Well, sometimes when you're dealing with things where you can't have that evidence, you still have to wonder and see if there's any way you can do analysis, right? So, I know that, for example, in biblical scholarship, uh, are, there's like textual analysis that they they use, and they have a lot of methodologies for for trying to figure out when things happened and uh, uh, you know how likely something was to have been written by the original author. There's all these ways of sort of uh, examining and deriving more information out of what at first may seem like a small sample, and. Um, I, I am fascinated by this, and I, I, I want to understand better. I, I may not be able to uh, help us understand in particular cases, um, you know, of particular monsters, whether they're real or whether they're not. But what it does give us some insight into is, I think, the human nature of, of telling stories and, mm. and, and the ways that we might be able to figure out more about 
what was uh, I, I keep wanting to come back to the word viral, but what seemed like an important thing to tell, right? And in an yeah. urban legends or, or a lot of those stories, there's a moral piece to it, you know. So I know right. that we, when we talked to Waldron, uh, the Black Shook story had a, a sort of a political religious context that uh, people get caught up with the the giant dog, and it's very interesting. But there's a lot more going on in that story than just a black dog appearing and killing people. Yes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. So yeah. I imagine as, as we look at these these black dog stories, uh, each of them on their own has these elements that are that repeated, but they also have their own uh, additional material that may you know may be telling you a lesson or may may be told as a scary I, true story. So mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. Uh, and within folklore, this idea of the morality tale is, is a very strong one, actually. Um, so you find within black dog traditions, there's a, a story that comes from near me about a black dog called the black dog of the Haynes. Um, and this is um, a story about a family who one member of this family made a wager that he could ride between one point and another point in a particularly short period of time or die trying, which sometimes is in this story as well. Um, so he sets out, he, he gallops his horse from point A to point B. Just before he arrives at point B, this black dog jumps out, scares the horse, the horse rears, the man is thrown from the horse and he breaks his neck and dies. Moral of the tale could be about not placing bets, not gambling, not putting wages on. There's a moral of the tale that says don't ride like an idiot in the same way as don't drink and drive in modern times. There are lots of different right. morals that you could get from that. But then you look across the country and you find this same story in three, four, five other places uh, with differences, as you would expect, but still ultimately somebody riding a horse between two points and a black dog jumping out, scaring the horse and the man being thrown, breaking his neck and dying. So, yes, the morality tale is is an important aspect within folklore, and that's that's probably a good example of that. And this this transmission does happen, and you're right, actually, Blake, about this kind of viral transmission, and it does predate the internet. As as you were talking about that, I suddenly remembered being told as a trigger warning for anybody who's eating their dinner while they're listening to this particular podcast. <laughs> they should know to not do that by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I remember being told in good faith by somebody that I worked with years ago that although it happened hadn't happened to them, uh, a friend of theirs had been eating 
a particular brand of fried chicken, which is available all over the world, and had bitten into a cyst in the chicken, became ill, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think Jan Brunvans covered that one as well as as well as the deep fried rat and other similar ones. It's a well-known urban legend, but I was told it as a friend of a friend tale. Um, so it is like this viral transmission of memes these days. You know, you had it before the Internet, for sure. We have the, the superstition about a black cat crossing your path uh, and being bad luck. Um, yeah. is, is there any anything similar like that with black dogs and any any other superstitions? associated with black dogs well i i guess um it's not superstitions in the same way particularly but there are certainly different aspects to the black dog the shook as i said before or the bar guest is another particular term for that type of black dog is is very much um portentous so it's an omen of either bad luck or it's an omen of doom or death within the family to um, see the shook or to meet it head on or to be paced by it or any one of a number of different versions. Um, But then there are other variants of black dog folklore where the dog is protective. And there are many, many stories within folklore where um, a woman usually or sometimes a particularly timid man walking late at night is walking through um, a forest or a very lonely road or some other piece of terrain which is very remote, uh, and a random black dog joins them, accompanies them on their route, and disappears at the other end. Either they go into the house and they say to their wife or husband, this dog has accompanied me, come and look at it, and it's gone, or they just turn around and it's disappeared. And then it transpires later on in the story that there had been, you know, known robber activity or muggers or some other kind of malicious character on this road from whom this person has been protected from whatever nefarious ends they were going to suffer. So there is this uh, idea of the black dog as a very protective symbol as well. Um, And those sorts of stories are slightly different. I guess they're, we probably should have split this down earlier, but you find this with ghost lore as well, uh, and probably actually um, with other types of monster lore. There are two different versions. There's to take ghosts. There's the folk ghost, and there's the eyewitness account of a ghost or a haunting. Mm-hmm. So the folk ghost is a ghost from within history where there are no eyewitness accounts. There are no names associated with the story. The story is legendary or it's traditional, or it's on these morality tales or whatever. And that's slightly different um, to the eyewitness account, so where you get sent something by a person who saw this a few days ago or or whatever. And that's more of a kind of, they have experienced something firsthand, which may or may not be the same as drawing from this folk tradition or this folk ghost aspect. And you, you find it with... Yeah, monster lore and everything else as well, I guess. Uh, you mentioned ghostly hounds in conjunction with the wild hunt. And um, we've not yeah. had a chance to do a wild hunt episode, but you've talked about it a bit on the Folklore Podcast. Could we? Could you sort of introduce the wild hunt and, and how this particular uh, thing ties in with ghostly dogs, ghost spectral hounds? 
Sure. So the Wild Hunt is very much this kind of uh, legendary or traditional aspect, I guess. The Wild Hunt comes from across Europe um, within mythology particularly. So there is some form of um, phantasmal leader of the hunt. In some cases, it's Odin, if you're drawing on that kind of Norse or Anglo-Saxon element of the mythology. Sometimes it's said to be the devil. Um, Sometimes it's some important cultural person in the area that you are. So, for instance, in the southwest of the UK where I live, there are some cases where Sir Francis Drake is said to be the phantasmal leader of the wild hunt. Um, but, but there's this pack of otherworldly horses, um, ghostly riders that gallop across the sky, accompanied by hounds and possibly demons and other creatures. And usually it is an omen of death or, or misfortune to sight the wild hunt. So you need to um, cover yourself you need to lie on the ground cover your head not look at the hunt let it pass bad things can happen if you engage the wild hunt within uh mythology for example um one one person who'd had a few too many uh drinks down the local pub one night was said to have come across the leader of the wild hunt and who was carrying a sack uh and the leader of the wild hunt faces up to this uh, gentleman who then says, oh, have you had good hunting? And the leader of the wild hunt gives him the sack and and uh, they they ride off. And the man goes home full of um, full of himself because he's faced up to the wild hunt. And he goes in, and he says to his wife, I, you know, I met the wild hunt. I asked them if they'd had good sport and they gave me this sack of their spoils from the hunting and they open the sack and they lay it on the ground and the uh, the head of the family's child is contained in the sack. So the moral of this particular piece of mythology is obviously don't face up to the wild hunt. It's a very bad thing to do. Mm. So mm. that is that that really is, is a kind of the basic symbolism or the basic mythology of the wild hunt. Yeah. So it, it ties in in a number of ways with, with the more traditional black dog lore. We mentioned it briefly before the idea of motifs in folklore. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of these ideas, these little nuggets of, of information like the giant dog or headless dog or the dog is a harbinger of doom or guardian or tied to a family. Are those motifs? And and I guess what I'm wondering is like, how are motifs used in folklore research uh, from an academic perspective? Uh, Well, you said earlier on, I think that um, you called motifs kind of an element of the story or an element of folklore. Uh, And that's, that's probably a good way of describing them. So, um, mo- motifs are these kind of elements that set a story apart from another story. There's a very, very comprehensive index of motifs within folklore, which was drawn together um, by Stith Thompson. It's the Motif Index of Folk Literature. Um, and this is a massive collection of, of what are considered to be all the distinct motifs within folklore tales. And they're, they're all numbered and cross-referenced. Um, so for example, motif E384 is ghost summoned by music. And then you get subdivisions from that. So E384.1, ghost is summoned by a beating drum. E384.2, ghost is raised by whistling. Um, 
And it, it's a way of drawing all these different elements together so that they can be cross-referenced between stories. It, it's it's a very academic approach, uh, but it's not an approach necessarily that that many folklorists these days would refer to particularly as quite perhaps quite an archaic approach. It's a very, very valuable um, piece of work. Uh, but really, the, yeah, the motifs within folklore are these elements that set stories apart from each other and allow you to to compare how different stories work. So, yes, headless is, is a motif and then it would be broken down. So you'd have a headless black dog or you'd have the headless horseman or, or you'd have um, headless horses uh, pulling a phantom coach. So the headless part is a particular motif, and then you have all these different subdivisions as to how that could occur in different stories. So it's a kind of typology, in a sense. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we've been looking at historical accounts of black dogs, um, and you've also mentioned that there are still stories around today. Could you tell us a little bit about some recent accounts of black dogs sightings well recent accounts really in many ways are very similar to old accounts and this is this is something that i was touching on before in so much as people will report being paced by a dog for example or or seeing a dog do a particular thing um but there are there are variations based on time so in folklore there are a number of stories where people who were in a pony and trap would have been paced by a dog that would accompany the pony and trap. And there are stories from more modern times where black dogs are reported to have paced people who were in cars. So they're very similar. Um, but what happens in some of these more recent stories, and this kind of touches on what I was saying earlier about um, Ben Radford's work with the Chupacabra um, and, and the way that these stories are related to the culture around you uh, is that there is this kind of change in some of the aspects that are being reported. So this thing about the eyes is still reported. Uh, the size of the eyes is still reported, but in a lot of traditional accounts where the eyes were said to be red in a lot of more modern accounts, the eyes are said to be yellow or are said to be black. Um, and what's probably happening here is, again, people are drawing on this culture of lycanthropy or werewolf law um, and these kind of traditions within horror films. You look at American Werewolf in London and things like that. Uh, and they're kind of mapping those aspects onto their experiences. And the other thing that we find a lot more that we didn't have with the older accounts is that there are a lot more uh, auditory phenomena reported with more recent accounts so in older accounts there was very very little sound maybe the sound of the dog walking might have been the main thing uh, there is a type of black dog in the same way as some are categorized as shooks there's um in one particular area of the country the dog is called the padfoot there's a, a link there with um Harry Potter for those that Harry Potter, yep. And, and J.K. Rowling uses a lot of folklore in her work. So yeah, Sirius Black. Sirius relates to the dog star. Black obviously is the black element, so you have black dog. He was also known as Padfoot, which is a particular type of black dog from one part of the UK. Um 
but but yes that and that the derivation of that may well be the sound that the dog made made as it walked there's another variation of the black dog which is called the trash and again that's probably comes from the sound that the dog's paws made as it walked but aside from that very very little in the older accounts um that suggest any kind of noise whereas in more modern accounts lots of people report um more demonic noises growling or snarling or or more demonic hellhound style noises so again culture is changing the way that these experiences are decoded and the way that they're related i think in many cases um there's no reason to doubt that people have experienced what they say they have because let's face it there's quite big money to be made out of a decent ufo abduction story there's quite a big money to be made out of uh, a decent sighting of the loch ness monster with some supporting evidence but you don't find very many people claiming to have experienced a black dog and going out for publicity off the back of it because the law is not strong enough in that way. There's nearly a thousand years of it, but within our culture, it's not hugely strong. So I don't take most of these cases and say somebody's probably making that up because they have no reason to particularly um, so I don't doubt that most people experience these things in the way that they do. Mm-hmm. And that's where I become more interested in it is why they're decoding it in this way. So, yeah, these more modern accounts, they're very, very similar, but you get these slight variations. They sound a lot like uh, modern accounts of big cat sightings. Well, there, there is, yeah, there, there, is a, there is a train of thought that suggests that that's the case. But I don't personally subscribe to that. Because um, the descriptions are too different in most cases. Um, I have no reason to doubt, because I've seen some quite different evidence to suggest the other way, that there are not big cats, you know, loose in the wild in in the kind of area that I live in and many other places live in. Um, I have no reason to doubt that at all. At the end of the day, um, you know, the, uh, the Dangerous Wild Animals Act coming in, lots of people released animals like that into the wild there's no reason to suggest that they couldn't quite happily survive and breed and um it's it's more likely that there are big cats in the wild around here than there are uh, a family of sasquatch probably um particularly because you don't tend to get very many bigfoot sightings in the southwest of the uk but um the descriptions are very very different and i i don't think that there's sufficient evidence to say that they are in a lot of cases, miscited actual animals. It would account for some, but not many. In the sense of the way the eyes are described uh, and that they're often the, the black dogs and they're often black large, large black cats. Um, yeah. It's very similar to the descriptions in Australia in particular that, that I've heard of, just on the surface of things. Yes, yes. In in some cases, there are similarities. And I think depending on the country that you're looking at, it's it's more likely or less likely um, that they would account for a large percentage of those sightings. So in Australia, where there's not a particularly prolific um, black dog folklore dissemination yes i would probably agree that um a larger percentage of cases would possibly be you know um miscited actual animals in the uk it's kind of the other way around 
Okay, interesting. The phrasing you use, you have no reason to doubt, or that sort of thing. From from, as a skeptic, sometimes I kind of cringe because I think, oh, well, I, I really should be doubting everything because it's some undoubted <laughs> thinking, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But I, it's the the question I think is, you know, do you have any reason to suspect that the people who cite these things or claim to have were were being insincere? And so the, it's like instead of the benefit of the doubt, I I, I guess it's the benefit of the sincerity. I, I usually assume that people. I, I doubt a lot of things people wouldn't doubt because there's no re- it's mundane stuff because it just so many things about our memory and and the way we frame stories m- means that what we think happened may not be what happened even in regular everyday occurrences. It's it's been a strange experience to become uh, I don't want to say to become a hardcore skeptic. I don't. It's not like a an achievement. It's just this this mode of thinking has become. Uh, my default, right? And and so it doesn't always serve me well. I, I You know, there's plenty of places in life where you're better off just going with it, right? <laughs> in matters of the heart, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I think Karen was trying to draw a parallel between uh, the giant cats or big cats, not necessarily to use it as an explanation for the big dogs, but... As in some of the descriptions. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the black-eyed kids stories. Are you familiar with that lore? Yes, yep. Okay, so, so to me, as a just a lot of those stories don't make much sense from a scientific rational perspective, right? Mm-hmm. But they do make great sense as a as a new and developing folklore. I mean, it it they we can kind of trace them back to an original case zero, yep. and as those stories have spread. People have added to the lore, and whether or not there's real things happening where people are really seeing things, I don't know. But people yeah. are generating these stories uh, yeah, and absolutely. using many of the same words. It's it's very interesting. Yeah. It's happening in, in, right now. Right? Yeah, seeing something. Uh, yeah, there are there are other versions. The the very first episode of the folklore podcast that I did was an interview with um, Andrea Kitter on the Slenderman stories. Um, and, and we've got a very, very similar uh, example there. Slender Man as a figure within folklore was most definitely created. We know who created Slender Man. We know when Slender Man was created. Pop onto Creepy Pasta and have a look at the history of Slender Man. Um, it's very, very easily traceable. But yet it now starts to disseminate and it starts to enter folklore because people are reporting experiences with slender man like it is an actual supernatural character not not a created entity then there's this high profile um court case where um two teenage girls stab another teenage girl because they say that slender man made them do it um so the the law then begins to spread and it begins to enter into this whole kind of legendary folkloric aspect um and we're starting to see it now i think with uh, with the creepy clown um stories which although they've died off a little bit um over the last few weeks there was a whole spate of social media time where pretty much every other story on your news feed was some clown that had been sighted in some town or other Firstly, in the States and then across the rest of the world, and it spreads into the UK and to Australia and other places. And it's only a matter of time before that starts to become some other kind of amalgamation of Stephen King's It 
and and people dressing up as clowns and standing in hedgerows and and everything becomes blurred and then that's where your folklore side starts to develop and take hold and these stories go out into the wider world yeah but you've got you've got hundreds of clown sightings but they're all in one tiny car what <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing because once they've got their shoes in there there shouldn't really be any room for anything else true <laughs> So we've talked about a lot of the aspects of this, this lore. Can you give the listeners a couple of example stories to give them a taste for what your book has in it? Yes, absolutely. Okay, I'll, I'll cite this one because this is quite good. This is a local one to me, and this comes from the, the more legendary side, and then perhaps I'll pick another one that, that's more traditional. So locally, there's a historical figure called Lady Howard, um, who was the daughter of... Um, a well-known man within the town. Um, she married four times, and each time she married, she added to her wealth. Um, and she was a very, very competent um, and brilliant woman. Uh, and there's quite a long story. Her, her, which I'll cut down. Her father uh, was was quite an evil character. He ended up. Um, sort of going on to this moral slide into degeneracy and um, eventually he has arguments. He kills people within the town, one of whom is his best friend. Um, and his daughter, Lady Howard, is is not a particularly um, evil character within the story, but yet um, the hatred and dislike of, of her father kind of gets mapped onto her later on in life so when she dies um the events of her own life kind of become merged with her father's um and there are stories start to take shape about her husband's deaths they become more malicious and this whole legend forms that says that she is responsible for killing all of her husbands which is not actually historically true but this uh, legend takes place and then this story develops that at every night at midnight, a phantom coach emerges from the house that she used to live in on all four corners of the coach as skulls, which represent her four dead husbands. And before the coach runs this big black dog with one eye in the middle of its forehead. And then in other versions of the story, she is said to turn into a black dog and run this road herself. Um, and the coach has to travel from the house to a particular grassy mound, uh, which has an old castle on it. She has to pick one blade of grass, and then she has to return to her house. And she has to continue to do this task until the mound is cleared of grass. Obviously an impossible task. Um, so it would take until doomsday. And that's the point. It's one of these morality tales, again, from within folklore. And you find this idea a lot of um, ghosts having to take on impossible tasks in death as retribution for something that they've done in life. Now, there's a lot more to that story, but it, it's quite nice because it um, it kind of sums up this kind of legendary aspect and it has a lot of different pieces of folklore in it. Um, and there are many other examples that I could cite, which um, which kind of cover the the other aspect, really. Um, but there's 
they they basically all take similar lines. Um, there there are ones attached to families where the uh, dog might be seen as portentous of of a death in the family, or it might be seen as protective. Um, there are dogs that run particular roads or pathways, um, and most of these are kind of fairly general sightings where a dog is seen by somebody who's out walking uh, it might pace them or it might um, cross their path and disappear and it has some ghostly aspect to it I, I i couldn't pick pick one story as being representative because there are lots of different aspects to them well yeah you've got hundreds in there yeah yeah here's one question i i think might be important did you notice any ways to get rid of these ghostly hounds because you know a lot of our listeners if they get attacked by a monster they might refer to our podcast to help guide them and how to deal with it <laughs> so <laughs> But I don't really know much about, you know, fighting off uh, ghostly hounds. Is, is there any go-to methodology or do the stories typically deal with getting rid of them? No, 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 they don't actually. There isn't, within black dog law, there isn't really that aspect to it. It's not that, that people are hounded, for want of a better term, by them. <laughs> um, I probably shouldn't have used that phrase. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I, I promise. Blake worthy. <laughs> That's asking for trouble. No, you no, gave the, me pause. The, the, what? Very. Yeah, I told you I should not have used that phrase. <laughs> but we don't find that aspect though. People, there, there isn't this need in in much of this law for because people are not being terrorized by them. It's usually a one-off event. It's not a recurring event unless it's unless it's somehow. <laughs> he said recurring. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this could be a long night. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean they they tend to be one-off events. It, it's it's not that people are haunted by them in that way. Uh, I don't necessarily mean that in the kind of ghostly aspect, but it, it's. It's not something that people experience and feel that they need to necessarily get rid of. It's just it tends to be a one-off event that, that is odd in some way. I wanted to ask as well, uh, this is kind of a sideline question, but the stories you hear about um, an owner of a, a dog uh, and they pass away and then the dog sits as a guardian on their grave for for mm-hmm. years or, or for months or weeks or something like that. Uh, are there any of the black dog stories that are tied to that kind of story uh, or maybe graveyard hounds or something like that? Well, there are, there are certainly lots of stories that relate to graveyards, but, but not in that particular way. Um, there are, there are stories where, uh, a, a person who has owned a dog and perhaps travelled a particular route frequently, so it might be a merchant or somebody like that who was always trading between two points. Um, they would die, uh, and then their dog would continue the route, or their dog would die, um, but would come back and, and walk the same route. So there's kind of that aspect. Sure. Um, there's there's not so much the kind of guardian aspect in that way. Black dogs can be seen as guardians, um, but they're they're possibly within folklore sometimes the guardians of treasure or they're the guardians of a particular place. Okay. Um, but but not quite in that same way as being the um the 
faithful hound who who Man's sits best on friend. the grave. I feel like we could uh, just keep talking about this topic for hours. There's just so much to discuss, but uh, unfortunately, we're at that point where we need to just draw things in. Uh, so we'd like to ask you our typical final question, which is, what's your favourite monster? Well, do you know I've listened to a number of episodes of Monster Talk in the past. So I know that I get away with this response. And this is the response of, really, I need to give you two? And and the reason for that is that I I naturally have to say the black dog as an entity, uh, which can be seen as a monster, has to be because I've devoted so much of my time into researching and collecting these aspects. Uh, So I naturally have to say that. But I, I want to give another one as well, and I want to give one that I find fascinating and I don't think will have been mentioned on here before, and probably for all the wrong reasons, but I just love this. Um, there is a TV program that came out of the States for a couple of seasons a few years ago. I think it came out on Fox. You probably will know better than I would. And it was an unbelievable program, and I use unbelievable in the truest sense and for all the wrong reasons. And it was called Fact or Fake Paranormal Files. Oh, yes. We know it well. Yeah. Good. Season one, episode one of Fact or Faked was the episode that contained the Nightcrawler footage. And this is uh, CCTV footage of this strange and mysterious creature which walks across this guy's lawn mm-hmm. uh, at night and, and is recorded on the CCTV. And in the morning, lo and behold, there is this footage and nobody has a clue what it is. Um, and fact or fate go in to investigate, and in their normal style, they try and replicate the footage to suggest that it might, yes, indeed, be paranormal, or no, it was faked, and this is how they did it. Now, they didn't manage to successfully recreate this footage in any way. So they naturally drew their own conclusions that if it wasn't faked, it could only be the alternative. In fact, if it wasn't faked, chances are that it perhaps was faked or was natural. They just didn't know what it was. Uh, But in any case, for some reason, this particular creature seemed to engage people a lot. And then there were other versions of this creature that was seen in other places and the footage arrives on the internet um, and the night crawler is seen somewhere else, but the footage doesn't really look quite the same as it did on fact or fakes version. Um, And to the best of my knowledge, to this day, nobody has ever been able to prove or disprove successfully what was in this footage. Uh, And that just continues to interest me because it's such a bizarre piece of footage and it's on YouTube. So if you haven't seen it, just go and uh, have a look at Fact or Fake Nightcrawler. You can see the footage on there and there's endless discussion by people as to what it might or might not be. But to me, it's just um, a monster in big inverted commas because it's some kind of alleged unknown creature that nobody has been able to prove one way or the other. And I, it amuses me. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually very familiar with that. I was just thinking about that maybe a week ago. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like to follow up on these things because... Sometimes when you leave these things alone, someone out there will dig in and find the answer. Um, that that is a fascinating one to me. I, you know, I, if 
It looks almost like a puppet or something to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like a natural creature. It's very interesting. So mm. uh, whatever it is. Yeah, we've, um, we've both had encounters, haven't we, with uh, that particular TV show? <laughs> <laughs> we have, <laughs> yeah. You know, they're not typically the ones making these videos. They're they're pulling them from the public. But, uh, yeah, but you you remember my story? Oh yeah. They came to my husband who had a, a video of uh, a Ouija board, uh, and it was basically a promotion for a movie. And uh, so they the producers got in contact with him, and they wanted him to uh, to basically embellish his video. And uh, yeah. so yeah, we have it on, on good authority that they do like to do a lot of faking themselves. <laughs> well, uh, the, the title of the show was Fact or Faked. And that's right. Yeah. Own mind which one it was. So I guess yep. that's kind of fair enough. Isn't it? Fits in with in, that. Exactly what it says in the title. In my run in, they uh, they they were trying to identify a, a ghostly image in, in one of their videos. and uh, Ghost train. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I was watching the episode and just used my TiVo to pause it and saw that it was clearly a spider. Ghost spider. <laughs> I can't prove that it wasn't a ghost spider, Karen. Good point. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it certainly appeared to just be a spider, and it took me oh at least four minutes to figure that out. So what was what, were their, uh, what was their conclusion? I can't remember anymore. I think if I recall, which I may not, uh, that they were not able to prove that it was fake. So maybe it was a ghost. No, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was very arachnid shaped if you paused it, though. I, I put a little debunking video on it. But at any rate, that the uh, Nightcrawler is a great answer. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a creepy video, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. I'd, 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 I'd love to see a discussion on the Monster Talk Facebook group as to, as to what people think that is, just for my own amusement. Good. Yeah, no, and it is. It's a great way to entertain your mind. So I agree. And if honestly, yeah, we've never had that as an answer before. Anyway, no, I thought perhaps not. when I'm out jogging at night, sometimes I think about those things. I mean, they the, You're a strange man. What would I do if if I saw something like that walking down the street? Nothing good, I imagine. It would. <laughs> and, and one other thing as well, people who are listening to this podcast because it is the folklore podcast rather than people who are listening to this podcast because it is monster talk as this is a crossover episode mm-hmm. will want me to turn the tables on you and ask you karen and blake what is your favorite piece of folklore Ooh, nice i i'm very fond of um lord dufferin story oh. uh, that that in, he was basically retelling it. so for people who don't know he claimed or he told a story as true where um, he was staying with some friends and he woke up in the middle of the night and saw a strange-looking man um, carrying a box that could have been a coffin. He's not really sure. Uh, And the guy gave him a weird look and he thought that was odd. But he went back to bed and the next day he tells the... uh, the hosts about it and they say well they don't know who he's talking about they know everybody in the village they don't know who he's talking about mm-hmm. um, and then a few years go by and he's in Paris and he goes into a hotel and he's about to get on an elevator and he notices the guy running the elevator is the guy that he had seen in the lawn carrying that box and he, he's taken aback so he doesn't get on the elevator the elevator goes up and it crashes to the ground and kills everyone on board, including the mysterious man. And then 
according to Dufferin, no one ever identified the body, but because of it, uh, he had been given this sort of portent um, and was able to avoid this accident. Now, he told that story as true, mm-hmm. um, and I read it uh, as though it were true when I was a kid, and later on in life, I, I went and investigated, because it occurred to me, after doing all this sort of paranormal investigation, that the, there are elements in the story that could be investigated, and I did all the research to find out what he gave the name of the hotel. Was there ever an elevator accident there? Did it kill anybody? And so on. Mm-hmm. And then I, I learned that not only um, uh, did it not happen, but that it was tied into urban legend, or I guess legendary folklore, about um, black uh, horse-drawn carriages uh, and the drivers thereof being portents of doom. Um, it was redone on the Twilight Zone where there was an episode where they kept uh, the woman in the elevator kept saying room for one more uh, and that turned out to be a portent for a plane crash. Spoiler! Uh, but <laughs> <if> you, <laughs> anyway, and so I, I love that story and I have a lot of folklore that I like but that particular one was very educational for me because in addition to investigating it, I also learned an important life lesson which is before you spend a lot of time doing original research check to see if someone else has done it before because after I did all my work, I discovered that it had already been debunked um, by Melvin Harris, I think. Um, And then before him, Paul Husey had also done the same work uh, at the turn of the century. And so multiple investigators had already done the same footwork to come to the same conclusion. But it is a fascinating story. Yeah, that's a that's a fun one. That's one of my favourites as well. And I guess uh, just the one I'm thinking of now is not as specific as that. It's a bit more general and there's no particular lesson to it. Um, but I was just thinking about one of my favourite bits of folklore being that one house that's in your, your neighbourhood. Uh, the one that's that everyone thinks of as being creepy you know, when you're when you're a kid. Uh, that's either the the witch's house or uh, a haunted house or the murder house or something like that. Um, I was discussing this recently with my husband. It seems to be something that you find in the states as well as I, I found growing up in Australia. I'm not sure if it's the same case uh, for you, Mark, in in England. If there's a when you were growing up, if there was a house on the street or in the neighbourhood or um, in your suburb or city that kids looked at as being the creepy house? Oh, I think in some cases there absolutely is, and I think you'll probably find that in any location, yeah. Yeah. Um, so often, I mean, Halloween's not a huge thing in, in Australia, but it'd be the house that you would avoid, the kids would have avoid. Um, and so the house that was in, in my neighbourhood, uh, in my area, it was uh, in, in Sydney, a place near, near Manly. Um, and my brother... I probably shouldn't be talking about this, but my brother and a couple of his friends broke into the, the house one night to check it out and see what was going on there. Um, and so they found some very, very strange things in there. There was a six-foot concrete bath that they discovered. Uh, there was no one in the house at the time. Um, they found lots of materials, uh, Rosicrucian materials and books and pamphlets and they also found lots of wads of German banknotes. So they thought, oh, we're going to be rich, all of this money that we've found. And it turns out they were notes from the period of uh, hyperinflation after World War I in Germany where people are uh, pushing around wheelbarrows full of money. It was just utterly worthless. So, um yeah, just a, just a very strange house um, that we all thought was haunted or that there was a witch living there or that a murder had taken place. And 
Um, so I couldn't even tell you exactly where the house is today, but um, it's a very strange place and it just seems like across cultures there seem to be this eerie, creepy house that uh, kids avoid. Oh, yeah, you always find them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we'll just keep that between ourselves. Nobody else will ever know. <laughs> sure. Just a few thousand. Or it could be this, it's, it's, it's all the same house. It's, it's Baba Yaga's house. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Mark, for spending some time with us. Thank you, Mark. Oh, thank, thank you too, as well. Uh, there's, there's a great crossover here, isn't there? Because um, the, there are many aspects of folklore that uh, that come into uh, the skeptical analysis of stories. Um, and the skeptical approach is, is very important to some of the ways of interpreting our folklore stories. So it's a good opportunity to bring it all together. Yeah, we just love a I good like story it. too. Absolutely. We'll have to do this again. So many other topics. Sure. No problem. Indeed. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzno. Today we interviewed author Mark Norman about his book, Black Dog Folklore, and about his show, The Folklore Podcast. You can find links to Mark's work in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed here are those of ourselves and of our guests, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you want the official opinions of Skeptic Magazine, you could buy a lock of Michael Shermer's hair on eBay. Place it into an earthen jar. Bury it under moonlight beneath an old apple tree. And then, wait patiently until the fall harvest. Have a virgin, led by a hound, walk through the field to the tree and... You know what? It would be easier to just buy the magazine at your local newsstand. Let's just do that. Forget about the whole apple tree and hair and all that. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters and the people who have bought us books from Amazon. We really appreciate it. And if you have the time, please take a moment and review Monster Talk on iTunes. Again, that really makes a difference. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for listening.
Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.